Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd, and my Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon in spring of 2018. Episode 17, Retelling 1001 Nights. Hello, this is Group 5. Today we're going to be talking about 1001 Nights that is introduced and annotated by Robert Irwin. This is a version that we read in our class and we'll be discussing this today. I'm Mackenzie, I'm a junior and a human physiology major, and the retelling I will be discussing later is 1001 Rabbit Tales. Hi, I'm Shannon, I'm a senior and a journalism major, and I'll be discussing the story of Sandbart later on. Hi, I'm Julia, and I'm a freshman, and I will be talking about the retelling of Aladdin and the King of Thieves. I'm Michael, I'm a sophomore, and I'll be talking about the retelling of Aladdin. I think the reason that contemporary art authors and artists take these traditional stories is to convey their own message by another by using someone else's story in a way. And I think, again, we see, like, the most common thing with retellings is altering traditional stories to be kind of G-rated versions for children's stories in order to convey specific morals and values that kids should find important. In more, like, kind of adult ways, there's definitely a use of satire in a lot of situations, like in sometimes gory, sometimes funny, inappropriate humor. We see a lot of, like, authors in different websites, especially. I know there's a website, I'm pretty sure it's called, like, The Onion, that does, like, these satirical, like, articles about certain situations in order to convey messages based on original story or based on real stories. So I think it's just authors are constantly trying to find new ways to tell their own message and like convey their own morals. Um, I definitely think something we've been exploring with all the comparison between our retellings and A Thousand and One Nights is that stories and retellings definitely do um, depend on cultural context and societal expectations and racial relations that are happening during that time. So I think the fact that we chose different retellings that were that, were, that are based in different time periods definitely do show the comparisons re- between the cultural context, especially between the Bugs Bunny and Aladdin and the next, the second Aladdin and then Sid Bad, which is definitely an older one, just highlight the differences between them. I do think it's interesting, like Julia brought up, how most of these are children's films which, or children's books, which if you read the actual Arabian Nights, it should not be anywhere near a child. Women are constantly being killed. Women are being raped. It does not seem like it should be something that children should be exposed to, but somehow they are getting exposed to it, not in a hor- not in a bad way. It is through satire, and like when I first read all this stuff, I or saw Aladdin, I saw this Bugs Bunny, and if I wasn't analyzing it for Thousand One Nights, I wouldn't have blinked an eye. But watching it and be like, wow, this is totally not like the original Thousand One Nights because it can't be. In order to like really grasp what is going on, you have to read the original. But for them to be more exposed to everyone in different cultures, like Shannon was saying, you have to make it a little different. 
And that's how, like Julia was saying, how every author is kind of getting giving their own view and what they think is going on in this story. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that we were talking about making these a little more G-rated. I remember we brought up in class that there were some uh, editions of A Thousand One Nights in which they took out different stories and then replaced them with other ones because they realized that maybe times were changing and we shouldn't be telling children these things. And, you know, maybe Aladdin is kind of like the culmination of that where you're just ultimately making this the most G-rated thing as possible. But there's still these uh, themes that persist of how you're stereotyping or classifying different people and... Maybe the next time that another film like Aladdin's made, it will be different. So first, we're going to start off by talking about archetypes that we noticed in A Thousand and One Nights, or also known as the Arabian Nights. So the first part that I'm going to talk about is um, the hero archetype. By, and she, I'm, in the story of A Thousand and One Nights, Sharzard, I think, is the hero archetype. She realizes the horrible things that are happening to all the women around her, and she knows someone needs to put it to the end. Sharzard comes with a plan without her sister, Dunziad, is also in on. The plan is that before Sharzard lies with the king, she will ask to see her sister to say goodbye before she is killed after they lie together. And then after she says goodbye, her sister will stay in the room while the king does what he wants with Sharzard. Usually it is a cycle that the king will have his way with a woman and then kill her after. However, since Sharzard is her sister, they have developed a plan and her sister asks if Sharzard could tell her a story. Thankfully, the king allows this and she goes on to tell a thousand and one stories over a thousand and one nights. Every night, the king is so intrigued in the story, and he can't wait to hear the next part of it, so he continues to spare her life. Charizard is insanely brave. She has risked her life in order to help with women all around. Even though her dad begged her not to do this, she refused because she knew it needed to be done. What did you guys think about Charizard being a hero? What kind of archetype do you think she is? Or do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think she did display a hero archetype. Something that also stood out to me within A Thousand and One Arabian Nights was that I thought it displayed a trickster archetype. More specifically, I thought the protagonist within the story, Sharzar, displayed herself and portrayed herself as a trickster. This is because she's cunning and uses her intelligence to get what she wants and achieve her own motivations within the story. For this reasoning, I thought uh, Sharzar reminded me of the character within Puss in Boots. However, I thought Sharzar had more of a moral conscience and really played upon that. Um, thus supporting the hero archetype, which Mackenzie talked upon earlier. The trickster archetype is something I find interesting because it can vary greatly depending on the morality and conscience of the trickster. Therefore, that's why I saw a difference between the Puss in Boots trickster and the 1001 Arabian Nights trickster. I actually think it's really interesting that both of you guys said it was the hero and the trickster archetype because, again, this is... A uh, Thousand and One Nights isn't just one story. It's kind of the first story that we read is the frame story, kind of the whole thing that sets up the entire stories. But um, right from that beginning story, you can see obviously that the Sharzar is the protagonist. And I just wonder, because this, this was written a very long time ago and it's still kind of unclear about like where it originated and what culture Um but it is a female protagonist. So is that something that was unusual for that time? I mean, if we're looking at past history, I mean, women were usually not any sort of type of, like, important character. So, I mean, what are, what are our thoughts on having the woman, a female, being, like, the main character, the one who, like, kind of saves the day and tricks the male? One thing I do find interesting on that note, Julia, is that women in this culture don't really have rights. They are usually seen as objects. Like I know in Saudi Arabian culture, women can't walk alone without a man. 
and the fact that she's able to do this, especially because this is a female protagonist and her dad, who would be in charge of her since she isn't married, is refusing his wishes, which I thought was very interesting. And, you know, go feminism. She is like, I need to do this for women all around. And I think that's amazing. And I think she's a huge role model, which is why I think she's a hero archetype. Um, she's doing great things for women everywhere. And she's standing up for something that she truly believes in, even if it is sacrificing her own life. I definitely agree. I thought what was most interesting was that uh, Shahrazar acted as her own heroine to solve an issue in her own life, as opposed to a male hero solving or saving a um, female victim or damsel in distress. So I thought the switch upon that archetype was really interesting, especially how she did come in and save her own issues in her own life in addition to helping others around her. Yeah, I definitely thought she was more of kind of the trickster because she was using kind of her wits to get around um, this person who was probably going to kill her. And I thought it was pretty admirable. And she also, I'm not quite sure if this is an archetype, but she kind of acted as like this noble sacrifice to like end all other kind of killings that will happen but she didn't get killed but she was willing to put her life on the line so she is a hero in that sense and she is definitely a trickster another archetype in terms of the situation that she's in it is a bit of a journey archetype in which she the heroine has to I guess, in a sense, save the kingdom after the king has been killing all the women. So she's kind of going on this mission that'll last a thousand and one nights to to save, I guess, womankind. Do you guys personally like this story? I definitely really liked it. I thought the way that the female protagonist was portrayed was really advantageous for her (laughs) because it showed her wit and her cunning, and I think that was unusual, especially compared to some of the other um, stories within A Thousand Arabian Nights that definitely isn't an archetype that's portrayed. So I think that the overall story of A Thousand One Arabian Nights was very interesting and stood out. I also did like this story. I didn't like that women were being killed, which obviously I think is a known thing that most people wouldn't like that. It just did make me a little upset that these two brothers are going around killing all these women for one woman's mistake. I don't think that's fair, honestly, and that is what made me upset about this. But the fact that Charizard knew that this was happening and she stood up to try to fix it is amazing. I don't think I would have the guts to do that, especially if my dad said no. I just think she's amazing. Like I like that there is a strong role model in this culture and that she can portray that. In the beginning story, night one, there was these two poems that the narrator uses throughout the story. It basically stated how women use sex as a way to get what they want. And again, it's just interesting that this story has so many contrasts. This story has women being killed, but then it also has a woman as the protagonist and hero. And then it has these poems that kind of, again, state that women use like sex to get what they want. I think that is a big issue in today's culture because women are trying to get away from using themselves for just sex. I think women everywhere are trying to say that I am a person, I have brain power, I am smart enough to do everything a man can, which again, is why equal pay is an issue because women are trying to get the same things in the world without using sex. 
Unfortunately, that is not how everyone sees it. A lot of people think that women can only do things through their body, which I think is completely not true as a woman, as someone that wants to go into the medical field. I think it's nice that they are challenging this concept. However, she is still being used for sex, which is very unfortunate. Do you have anything to add, Shannon? So I definitely think that a flaw within Shazar acting as, you know, the female heroine is that she did have to use her sexuality to save herself and the rest of the women in the area um, because in the end it was because she had given, you know, her husband children that she was spared. So I think that definitely plays upon how in that time whether or not she survived was based on her sexuality and what she gave to her husband and what he benefited from with her. So I think that definitely is a flaw within the story. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys brought up this conversation of sexuality because it ties into what my archetype is kind of playing off. And I was talking about the the gene, the Ginny, however you pronounce it. And I think this really ties together because the Ginny is described as... Um, you know, the shapeshifter who is a supernatural creature and he holds this girl captive who is using her sexuality as kind of like a weapon against these men and she kind of like forces them to sleep with her. So I think that sexuality and kind of like how it's used is a reoccurring theme all throughout A Thousand and One Nights in this story. And I think that it's just really interesting to see how it recurs over and over again. I think that the Ginny and the girl are actually kind of like weaponizing their sexuality in this villain archetype, which is really interesting to look at. That was awesome, Michael. Thank you. Um, we're going to move on to the retelling analysis. So my the story that I chose, or the movie I actually chose to watch, was Bugs Bunny's third movie, A Thousand One Rabbit Tales, a kid's movie, shockingly enough. This is a movie that includes Bugs Bunny characters in a way to create a satire movie of the Arabian Nights collection. In this retelling, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny both are assigned to sell books in different areas. I compared this part to how the brothers become kings in different areas because they are sent to different areas to sell books. Throughout this adventure of them going to sell books, they obviously encounter some difficulties because, you know, it's Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. And somehow they end up back together. And they fall into an Arab a kingdom of Arabian culture, just like how the brothers come back together. Thankfully, since this is a children's movie, there is no rape and no murder, which unfortunately I think that those are two key components of the Arabian Nights story, like we were talking about earlier, about how the women are using their sexuality to try to change the world for better or to be a villain in the case with the genie. That is definitely absent in this retelling of the story. But moving on. So Bugs Bunny goes to the kingdom and asks the king, who is Yosemite Sam wearing a turban? If he would like to buy this book that has a thousand and one children's stories. This is why this is similar to a thousand and one nights because it's a thousand and one children's stories. Yosemite Sam is ecstatic because he needs someone to read to his son, who is the prince of the kingdom. Bugs initially refuses and is then threatened to be sh thrown into boiling oil if he does not read these stories. To me, Bugs is not a hero in this. I think that most people would think that. Charizard is a hero because she chooses to go read these stories and this is her Plan, Bugs is forced into this. Even though both of their lives are at risk, Charizard did not have to do this. She had the option to run away. Bugs was forced into this situation, which I think doesn't make him hero, just a normal person that wants to keep his life. Um, the movie continues, and Bugs reads a handful of classic fairy tales to the prince. These fairy tales include Jack and the Beanstalk, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, and Goldilocks. This is similar to Arabian Nights because all the stories that Charizard is telling are all Arabian folk tales. 
The difference is that the Rabbitales all have an end and the ones in Arabian Nights do not have an end. The reason those don't have an end is because if the story was complete and the king was satisfied, he wouldn't keep Charizard around to complete the story. He needs to keep her around for her to complete the story because he's so interested in it. So then he waits another night to see how the story goes and then she ends up saving her life through that. But all of Bub's stories just end up ending, which is a key difference, I think. After each story, Bugs just try to leave, but the king and the prince both refuse, unless he wants to be burned in oil. Thankfully, since this is a children's movie, just like I said earlier, there is no acknowledgement of rape or murder. These two components are huge in Arabian Nights, and I think is what makes it such a famous collection, because there is lots, in a sense, drama. Instead, the Bugs Bunny version has them just trying to sell books, and they are roped into a bad situation. Charizard, like I said earlier, puts herself into this bad situation in order to help the women being killed. There definitely is a big gap between these two stories because there's no rape and murder, which I think is a key component, like I said. Without these two components, there really wouldn't be a story. But thankfully, since this is a children's book, there shouldn't be any rape or murder, which is good. I'm happy that it is giving children a sense of what Arabian Nights collection is. However, like we will mention later, that it could be sort of offensive because Yosemite Sam is perceived as an Arabian prince because of his turban, which doesn't make him a person of Arabian culture. We'll touch on that a little later. For my retelling, I chose the story of Sinbad the Sailor. Uh, So this story follows the protagonist of Sinbad. Uh, Sinbad comes from a wealthy family, although due to poor financial choices and him being very young, he loses his wealth and must fend for himself. So he decides to become a merchant sailor and set out to sea to fulfill his motives of gaining wealth. While at sea, his ship becomes shipwrecked on an island. The island that they're on turns out to be a whale, of all things, and so Sinbad must float to a nearby island. While on the island, his hero side comes to light when he helps a horse groom save a mare from drowning. So this ends up helping him in the end because the mare and the horse groom turns out to be a servant of the king of the island. So Sinbad soon meets the king, who graciously thanks him for helping his servant. Um, And the king awards Sinbad with a treasure chest full of valuables. So then the archetype of rags to riches and also the trickster archetype come into play because Sinbad soon trades the items in the chest for more valuable items. So it increases his wealth. And that was Sinbad's first voyage. And then Sinbad goes on other voyages and they kind of all have a repetitive plot because in the end he trades his items for more valuable items in order to become more wealthy. So I thought the archetypes in this one are definitely interesting because Sinbad does have a um, rags to riches archetype, but he does it in a very moral conscious way because he's helping people along the way so he also is adhering to a hero archetype so I definitely thought that was interesting and I saw a lot of similarities between 1001 Arabian Nights and this individual Sinbad story I definitely saw a lot more commonalities especially in the staples that were chosen to be represented in this fairy tale for instance the existence of monsters or vicious animals so in this story there was a sea monster and a huge snake and definitely other monsters as well and then you know, of course, the hero saving someone in need, which was the mayor and the horse groom, and Sid Bad, and then a hero being awarded by an authority figure when the king awarded St. Bad with his treasures. So I thought that all the similarities between our past episode when we talked a little bit about Puss in Boots, and then we talked a little bit about Arabian Nights and Sid Bad, I thought they all had a lot of commonalities that we've definitely drawn upon. 
So I decided to analyze a modern retelling of the story Alibaba and the 40 Thieves from A Thousand and One Nights. So Alibaba and the 40 Thieves is one particular story that Sharzar tells the king. So Alibaba and the 40 Thieves is one of the most popular stories from Arabian Nights and um, is most commonly used as a children's story today. Um, so the film Aladdin and the King of Thieves is actually a sequel to the Disney movie Aladdin, and it's a modern retelling of the story Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Um, so in the original story, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, two brothers, one um, greedy, marries a rich woman, and the other brother works hard and supports his Self and his wife. Um, one day, the poor brother Alibaba sees a band of thieves open a magic cave full of treasure by using a secret phrase. And um, once they leave this cave, he carefully and discreetly uses the secret phrase to open the cave and takes out gold and stealing money and gold from it. And he tells his wife about this. So Alibaba and his wife go to his sister-in-law to ask for a scale to weigh their new gold. But she secretly puts wax on the scale to find out what they're using it for. And surely enough, she finds out that they have all this gold. And she tells Alibaba's brother Kasim about this. And Kasim, greedy as he is, presses his brother uh, to find out where he got his get got all this gold and Alibaba tells him and Kasim then goes to the cave and takes as much as he can but he forgets the secret phrase that unlocks the cave so he traps himself inside which then leads the thieves to find him inside and they kill him so then Alibaba goes back to find his brother but the thieves had left Kasim's body chopped up as a warning to whoever found the cave that they will kill anyone. So Alibaba takes his body to sew it up because his wife wanted a proper funeral. And once the thieves realize that the body is gone, they also realize someone else knows about the cave. So they devise these set of plans to capture whoever this individual is. But sure enough, a, another character named Morgiana thwarts these plans over and over and eventually she saves the day and Alibaba has this cave now <laughs> full of treasure. So Aladdin and the King of Thieves is a sequel from the Disney movie Aladdin. So it's a much friendly children's version of the story. And again, like I said, Alibaba and the Ten Thieves was mainly used today as a children's story to by parents to warn kids about the negatives of greed and stealing. In the movie, Kasim is replaced by the character of Aladdin's father, who acts in the same sense. He's a very greedy character and left Aladdin and Aladdin's mom in order to pursue wealth and greed. In the movie, the object of Aladdin's father's desire is a magical object called the hand that can turn anything into gold. And throughout the movie, Aladdin's father is constantly making decisions in order to obtain the hand rather than uh, reconnect with his son. In the end of the movie, Aladdin's father finally realizes that 
true treasure of his life is his son. This modern day story is altered from the original in which in which Kasim only cares about greed and ends up dying. This modern day retelling shows that Aladdin's father chose his son over his greed and gold and ended up living in the end. So I'm happy, Julia, I picked this retelling because the Alibaba and the 40 Thieves actually also came up in the Rabbit Tales, which I didn't notice so until she brought it up. So that's why I'm bringing it up now. So Daffy Duck actually found this huge cave of a whole bunch of gold, and he was so greedy that he literally shoved Bugs Bunny into a hole and tried to keep it all for himself. And then he tried to go back in there and got... All his feathers plucked. So thankfully, instead of dying, he got his feathers plucked. And then they ended up escaping safely besides lack of feathers. But it was very interesting that she brought that up because it also came up in this retelling. So it's nice to see that there are a lot of retellings that are very similar and see different aspects of it. My retelling of a story from A Thousand One Nights was a story of Aladdin. And I thought this was particularly interesting that the original story of Aladdin didn't appear in the original version of One Thousand One Nights. The story is called Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp. And uh, it was actually added in the 18th century version of A Thousand One Nights by Antoine Galland, who heard it from a Syrian in Aleppo. And for our generation, Aladdin is probably one of the most well-known retellings of A Thousand and One Nights. So so the movie starts off with the street peddler telling us the tale of Jafar, the sultan's visor, meeting with a mysterious thief figure named Kasim. The two combine their parts of a golden beetle, and when they put the pieces together, it makes the Cave of Wonders. And Jafar orders Kasim to enter, and the cave closes on Kasim, leaving Jafar to realize that he needs something called uh, the diamond in the rough to enter. The next day, we're introduced to Aladdin, a street boy who is just trying to get by using his wits, and, you know, he's uh, stealing from others. Aladdin is accompanied by his sidekick monkey, Abu. Princess Jasmine, the daughter of the sultan, escapes from her palace after rejecting an advance for marriage from the royal prince, and eventually she crosses paths with Aladdin. The royal guards eventually find Aladdin, kidnap him under Jafar's orders, because Jafar plays a pretty important role with the sultan. When she goes looking for Aladdin, Jafar tells Jasmine that he has been killed because Aladdin kidnapped her, and the truth is that Aladdin has not been killed, but rather he was imprisoned by Jafar. And Abu helps Aladdin to escape, and they encounter another prisoner who needs help to locate the Cave of Wonders. But this is a big twist because the prisoner is actually Jafar. Aladdin, Abu, and Jafar get to the cave, and only Aladdin and Abu can enter, and they're told they can't touch anything but the lamp, which is hidden inside the Cave of Wonders. And they are guided to the location of the lamp by a magic carpet, but Aladdin breaks that one rule, and he steals a ruby, and the cave collapses on them. So Aladdin rubs the lamp and is told that he has three wishes, but he can't do the following things. He can't wish for more wishes, he can't kill anyone, and he can't make anyone fall in love with him. And the last one is he can't bring people back from the dead. Aladdin tricks a genie that emerges from the lamp into letting him escape from the cave without using a wish. So Aladdin's using his wits once again. After escaping, Aladdin asks the genie what else he should wish for. So the genie kind of tells him what he would wish for, and one of his wishes is to be let free. So Aladdin basically makes this promise that after he uses two wishes, he'll use his last wish to set the genie free. And Aladdin's first wish is to become a prince because Jasmine is a princess and he's kind of getting around that rule that he can't make anyone fall in love with him. 
So back in the city, Jafar, who desperately wants to gain power, tries to convince the Sultan that he can marry the princess if she is not married by a certain time. And Jafar is basically really good at manipulation and tries to manipulate the king with uh, different techniques. He uses his staff for uh, hypnosis, which we'll see later. Aladdin returns to the city, and the Sultan, Jasmine, and Jafar are unaware that it is Aladdin. So he returns as a prince, basically, and they don't know it's him. Jasmine is unimpressed by the prince, and Aladdin eventually reveals his identity and charms her with a magic carpet ride. Aladdin returns to the palace with Jasmine, and then he is seized by the guards, and the guards throw him into a lake, and Aladdin still has the lamp, and he accidentally rubs it, which causes the genie to emerge. The genie convinces Aladdin to save his own life, and he returns to the palace. He finds Jafar manipulating the sultan through hypnosis with his staff, and then Aladdin destroys the staff, and Jafar is able to escape. Somehow, Jafar is able to steal the lamp, and the sultan sees that Jasmine wants to marry Aladdin. Now that Aladdin has used two wishes, the genie is ready to be freed, and the genie tries to convince Aladdin to free him, but he's not ready to do so yet. So as I said before, Jafar was somehow able to steal Aladdin's lamp, and Jafar summons the genie and makes him carry out his orders. Jafar takes the palace to a remote mountain and uses his first wish to become a powerful wizard. He reveals to everyone that Aladdin is just a poor street boy, and then he uses his second wish to become Sultan. He imprisons the real Sultan and Princess Jasmine until she agrees to marry Jafar. Aladdin somehow finds the magic carpet again and sneaks into the palace. Aladdin again uses his wits and convinces Jafar to use his third wish to turn into the genie, because the genie is ultimately more powerful than the sultan, and Jafar is so power-hungry that he actually takes Aladdin up on this offer. But the thing that Jafar doesn't know is that the genie is bound to obey whoever is in possession of the lamp. So then Jafar turns himself into a genie and is trapped by the lamp. Genie and Aladdin get rid of the lamp, and the genie reminds Aladdin that he still has his third wish. Genie tells Aladdin he can become a prince, but he uses his wish to ultimately free the genie like he initially promised. Aladdin goes back to the city, and the sultan allows him to marry his daughter, and he becomes heir to the entire kingdom. And I chose to focus upon kind of the problems that people have had with Aladdin over time. And one of the biggest complaints about Aladdin is that people say the film is kind of playing into these Orientalist stereotypes. And the Oxford English Dictionary defines Orientalism as the representation of the Orient and in particular the Middle East in Western academic writing, art, or literature. This representation is perceived as stereotype or exoticizing and therefore embodying a colonialistic attitude. And one critic of the film, uh, Jack Sheehan, who in 1992, when the film came out, was a professor of mass communication, said that Aladdin was, quote, a painful reminder to 3 million Americans of Arab heritage, as well as 300 million Arabs and others, that the abhorrent Arab stereotype is as ubiquitous as Aladdin's lamp, end quote. And the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee criticized the movie for its portrayal of Jasmine and Aladdin for having lighter skin colors, and they thought that they were kind of like anglicizing them which means they're making them like more european than they actually were and they actually portrayed like the villains in the film and the common people of agraba having darker skin and different facial features so they were kind of giving negative connotations to these people and there were also issues with the first song in the film aladdin and the first verse said from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face it's barbaric but hey it's home 
So these lyrics are really problematic because it's kind of enforcing these stereotypes of uh, what the culture is like in a place that is supposed to resemble the Middle East. Also, I think it's important to note that kind of the same themes about sexuality we saw in A Thousand and One Nights do come up in Aladdin. Like, for example, Jasmine is different than like a lot of other Disney characters because like her clothing is more revealing. And I think that that was like a deliberate choice that the directors made. And I think like that's definitely wrong because it's a children's film. And it's also like kind of playing into these like Orientalist themes. And I think that they should have made some different choices on what they gave her to wear as clothing. I think that the Disney films maybe are not the most culturally sensitive and unknowingly playing into some of these themes. So as I like enjoyed this film as a kid, it was like one of my favorite Disney movies. I realized that now it's a lot more problematic and it's not definitely not as simple as I thought it was when I was initially watching it. Michael, I thought it was interesting that you brought up um, how Aladdin and Jasmine were lighter and that the villains were darker because the reason that these these kings are killing women is because their wives are sleeping with black slaves and they made it very clear that these slaves were black and that that was what was happening. And so I thought it was interesting that these slaves could be portrayed as the villains and that they did make a distinction to make the villains in Aladdin darker and that the slaves that did sleep with their wives were also darker. Thank you. This is Group 5, and this is our Anarchy episode, Analyzing 1001 Nights or Arabian Nights. Hi, guys. It's Michael. Thank you for listening to our episode today. And thank you to freesound.org and specifically X Sarah for the Arab Group 1 music, which is the music we used at the end of our podcast, as well as the music we used in the beginning. So thank you again for listening, and thank you to everybody at freesound.org. and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches, both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. The sound of the wolf that lives in the woods That comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above Reaches down over everyone Got your jackal and heart, your monster inside Pouring water over your fire I incurl us a soul that I need to go Back into the woods, I'm told Not a single living thing needs to be left out You can find in the garden what's missing in yourself There's a spider web that connects heads 
connected by the number nine Can you think in visions and breathe in rhythms Dream an ocean over your lips It brings a deeper meaning, a powerful feeling Brings us the myths we're told And it's only clean water that supports the things that we're trying to grow not a single living cell needs to be left out You can find in the garden what's missing in yourself Have you seen the way the speaker makes a pattern in the sand When the frequency is just right, oh man, it's really rather rare 